Let me ask you to think for a minute about a situation that most of us have probably run across, and that's what do you think when a foreign family moves in down the street? Now, some of you may think, cool, this is great. We're going to get to meet some new people, learn some new customs, and hear a new language. That'll be exciting. But others of us, if we were honest, might admit that there is some angst in our soul about that. We may think things like, uh, what are they actually going to be like? And are we going to be able to communicate with each other? And will we get along? And how is our neighborhood going to change? Because these foreign people are now in our midst. But I think whatever perspective we have on the foreigner among us, we would all agree on this, that there is something fundamentally different about foreigners. Now, not better and not worse, just different. You see, because they have been raised in a culture that has taught them a worldview that is unlike ours. They've developed beliefs and patterns and behaviors that are not what we do here in the United States. And it feels very different to us. Now, this is what Peter has been trying to get us to understand in this epistle of his. Only we're the ones that have moved into the neighborhood as foreigners. Now, if you've never lived as an outsider in a different country, it may be hard for you to understand those dynamics. It's also a challenge because you would say, well, I've actually never moved anywhere. I'm still living in wherever I just was before. But you see, something inside of us has moved and changed. We are now, as followers of Christ, fundamentally different people than we were before. And what Peter wants us to see is that we are now the foreign people here. He said in verse 10 that those people who had not received mercy now have received mercy. My friends, that is such a profound blessing of the gospel. He's saying that those of us who were stuck in our sins, we were wretched, we were bound for destruction and hopeless. God literally pitied us. He looked down from heaven and took mercy on us, and he poured out mercy on us in his son, Jesus Christ. He goes on in that verse to say, you who were not a people have now become the people of God. You were a people that were disconnected from God. You had no relationship with him, and now by pouring his mercy upon you, he has brought you into his family and calls you his own children. And so no longer are we the people primarily of America or of Indiana or of Carmel or of India for that matter. We are fundamentally the people of God. And let me just share parenthetically that we've had a very emotional week as a nation and as Joe prayed there are some of you that may be very glad about what's ahead, and some of you may be very angry. Some of you are eager about what's to come, and others are very, very worried. But my friends, for those of us who believe our primary identity is as the people of God, and our fundamental concern is not our nation, it is the kingdom of God. And as foreign people now living here, we face two distinct challenges that Peter outlines in verses 11 and 12. There is a negative and an internal one, and there is a positive and a public one. Let's look at those one at a time. Now, this morning, we, 
We, we only have two sentences to study, verses 11 and 12. And uh, it took me 35 minutes to get through the first sentence, first hour. So let me just, I'm going to try to speed it up a bit, but if I don't get through it all, make sure you get the sermon notes, and you might have to finish the sermon before kickoff this afternoon by reading the sermon notes. <laughs> but what I thought we'd do, does anybody remember sentence diagramming back in the day when you were in, yeah. Did you like it? No, yeah. <laughs> well, I've done the work for you, so I'm just going to show you what it looks like. Uh, verse 11 starts with this word, beloved. There's two introductory words, beloved and I urge you. And then there's a modifying clause, a subordinate clause, as sojourners and exiles. And now comes the main phrase of verse 11, that is, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then the verse closes with another subordinate clause, which wage war against your soul. Beloved, this is a word that Peter used to start a new section of the letter. Up until now, he has been speaking primarily theoretically, theologically, about all the things that God has done for us and given to us in Christ. And now he's going to shift, much like Paul does in many of his epistles, to the practical application of all of that doctrine. He's going to answer the question, so what? And that's what Peter's going to do for the rest of the book. But with that word, he is also reminding these exiles who have been scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. He's reminding them that even though they've had to leave their homes and are now immigrants in a foreign country literally, he's saying you have not lost a place with God, but rather you now have a safe and secure place with the one who loves you. You have been so loved by God that he has poured out his mercy on you. He has made you his people. In fact, he's called you his precious possession. I urge you. It's a word that does not carry the weight of an apostolic hammer. He's not saying you must do this. Rather, the word is more of an invitation. He's begging. He's pleading. He's beseeching them that if they want what is good for them in God's design, they will do what he now asks them to do, and that is to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain is an easy word to understand because the Famous Greek goddess Nike has emblazoned that upon our advertising billboards. Abstain means just don't do it. <laughs> Boy, that exegesis was easy. We've got that word down. But we need to now ask three more questions about this phrase, which wage war against your soul. The first is, what do we abstain from? Second, why do we abstain? And third, how do we abstain? It says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The ESV has passions. The word just means a desire. It means a longing. And it's actually a positive word in Scripture. Jesus himself said it in Luke 22. He said, I've eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I leave. The passions of the flesh are the things that this body longs for and craves and desires. And so I thought maybe it would be helpful just to make a little list of those things. So I, I thought about my body, and then I wasn't sure if you wanted to hear what my body wanted. <laughs> but you all have bodies too, if you're listening to me, and we're all in this together. So, so here's just a few little things that I wrote down. My body needs air. Food, water, 
exercise, touch, sex, rest, sleep, and donuts. Then I'm good to go. Now, what would happen if I were to abstain from all of those desires of my body? I would be dead in a few minutes. <laughs> Even if you take air out of the equation, if I didn't eat or drink anything, if I abstained totally, I wouldn't live more than a few days, nor would you. You see, God has created our bodies, and He has given us these desires. It's part of His beautiful plan. And every single one of those desires, except maybe the donuts one, is a good desire that He has given under one condition, that we utilize and fulfill those desires within the parameters that He has prescribed. You see, God has cut channels for the rivers of our desires to flow through. He has created boundaries, and within those boundaries, those desires can flow as hard and fast as they want. And that's beautiful. That's how God has made us. But it is when we ignore the boundaries, when we get confused about them, when the water overruns the banks and our passions run riot, that now we are obeying the passions of the flesh. Paul expands the idea of these physical desires in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says that the desires of the flesh are set against the desires of the, of the spirit. That's the war that goes on. And the desires of the flesh then work themselves out in the works of the flesh. And here's what they look like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The field is vast of our physical desires. And I think what Peter is doing here specifically is he's talking about the desires of our body that we most often give into at the expense of our soul. It's good to eat. It's not good to eat too much. It's important to rest, but it's detrimental to us if we sleep too much. And how about sex? This was absolutely on Peter's mind because if you look at chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about how the Gentiles, the unbelievers, run rampant in this area of their lives. And I think this may be the area that we as a society and really throughout history have probably most often overflown the banks, the parameters that God has drawn for this beautiful gift that He has given us. Sex as designed by God is a desire that is to be fulfilled only within the context of the marriage bonds between one man and one woman. Any other fulfillment of that desire is a desire of the flesh that will war against the soul. Secondly, why do we abstain? Because these desires, these illegitimate longings that we have to overflow the banks that God has designed, wage war against the soul. What is our soul? It is the seat and the center of our inner lives. It's who we are deep inside. It's that part of us that relates with God. And deep down within each one of us, there is a battle going on for the very essence of who we are. Paul talks about that battle in Romans 6 and 7. You probably know that part of Scripture well. He says in 7.23, the members of my body wage war against the law of my mind, and this is what happens. What I want to do, I do not do, 
but what I hate, I do. Are you familiar with that war? I think you are if you're a human this morning. These desires are like mutineers within our bodies. They're waging an insurrection. They come in like soldiers in the Trojan horse. They enter through the eye gate or the foot at the field gate and and they enter into our beings and then they discharge the soldiers inside them. And suddenly we find that within our very beings we have terrorists and insurgents inside of us that are waging war against our souls. The word is stratuomai, from which we get the word strategic. These desires are sneaky. They plan and plot how they might overthrow us. And it's a long-term military campaign, not just a single skirmish or battle. If you've been around very long, you know what I'm talking about. They don't let up, do they? John MacArthur worded it like this. He said, fleshly lusts are personified as an army of rebels who intend to capture, enslave, and destroy the human soul. The verb implies not just antagonism, but constant and malicious aggression. Fleshly lusts wage an incessant search and destroy mission against us. People back in Peter's day, many of them said, you know, there's no real connection between the body and the spirit or the soul. There was teaching that you could do whatever you wanted with your body and then believe whatever you want with your mind and the two don't mix. And the Bible says that is not true. God has created us as holistic people. We have bodies and we have souls and they interact. And Peter says, when we give in to the illegitimate desires of our bodies, we crush our souls. And what does that look like? Well, the desires of the flesh are like a python that wrap themselves around our heart. Initially, they don't seem to be doing much damage, but slowly they begin to squeeze out the life of God and strangle it within us. You see, because when we sin, when we move towards the flesh, we move away from the only source of goodness and of life and of energy that there is, and that is God himself. We suffer from a guilty conscience. We lose joy. We lose peace. We lose the interest in worship and in meditating on the holiness and the grandeur of God. We lose any interest in service because we're just living for ourselves. My friends, when we give in to the illegitimate desires of the body, they beat and wreak havoc upon our soul. One writer worded it like this, fleshly lusts attack and conquer the inner life and lead it into captivity, impairing its energies, sullying its purity, lowering its tone, and cutting off the locks of its moral strength. See, it's referring to Samson. When Samson was in a right relationship with God and submitted to him, he had the power of God flowing through him. His soul was healthy. But when he gave in to the illegitimate desires of the flesh, it wasn't long before he was reduced to grinding slavery. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. This is a battle we're engaged in for our very souls. In fact, Long-term, we're endangering the eternity of our souls if we continue to persist in gratifying the desires of the flesh. 
Because if we continue and don't hear God's word and harden our hearts, we give evidence that we were never really transformed by the knowledge of God in the beginning. John Piper talks about our suicidal fascination with sin. And as I thought about that phrase, I thought of what I'd heard about the black widow spider. I know we have some kids in the service, but this is just a nature lesson. Um, And some of you know where we're going with this because you've heard about black widow spiders. God is so creative. He's he's made a world out there for us to learn from. But you've heard, I'm sure, that the black widow spider, the female, after mating, will often kill and eat the male black widow spider. That is just so bizarre, I can't even get my head around. But as I decided to look into a little bit more, I, I saw a picture of this. I found a picture that I wanted to show you. And so there's the female, and the, the male is just a little tiny guy. But as I saw this picture, I had this weird thing come into my mind, this movie sketch of the male black widow spider walks into a bar one day. <laughs> And there down at the other end of the bar, he sees a smoking hot female black widow spider. (laughs) Tracking with me? And he begins to make his move. He starts to sidle over to her because he doesn't know what's ahead. And what do we want to shout out to him? Dude, no! No! She looks good, but she's going to eat you in the end. Is that worth a couple minutes of pleasure? But he can't stop himself because he has this genetic programming, these hormones that run through his body. And and I actually found that they're not quite as dumb as we think they are because a recent study of male black widow spiders has found, this is the truth as far as I could tell, that they now select females that have just had a big meal. Wow, how did we get over there? (laughs) You're never going to forget this sermon because of that (laughs) illustration. But I I wonder if you've forgotten what Solomon said about the forbidden woman in Proverbs chapter 2. He said, her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. And what did he say in Proverbs 7 about the simple man who wanders near the prostitute's house? Or we might say in our day and age, the man who just clicks on the next image. He says this about that man. All at once, he follows her or he clicks or he watches. As an ox goes to the slaughter like a deer stepping into a noose or a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Proverbs chapter 7. My friends, we are the male black widow spider. The illegitimate desires of the flesh is that female, smoking hot, but deadly as sin. And if we engage with her, whatever our weakness and struggle is, it is going to crush our souls. D.L. Moody once said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. And I wonder if it's the same with you today. So how do we abstain, thirdly? Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because we are programmed. These desires are strong. But there's a clue in the text. As sojourners and exiles, we are to abstain from the desires of the flesh. 
Two words that are almost synonymous. Sojourners refers to the temporary nature of our living here, and exiles means that we're not citizens here and we don't have any rights. And both of those thoughts are helpful to me as I think about my struggle with sin. That it's not going to last forever, it's just a few short days, really. And also, I don't have any rights anymore because God has showed His love to me and showered His mercy upon me and He has made me His people, He has bought me. So now that I live in this body, I, I don't live for myself anymore because I belong to Him. That is a helpful thought. But what does the world tell us? The world around us says, yes, all those desires are legitimate and there are no parameters. Anything that you want to do, you should do. In fact, if you really want to be who you were made to be, you need to give in to all of those desires, whatever they are. And yet we now, because we've been transformed by God, know better. We have a new mindset and we don't believe that old lie any longer. We believed it once in the garden when we believed that if we went outside of God's rules and ate the fruit, we would be like God when instead we died. But in the words of that great 1970s theologian Pete Townsend, we won't be fooled again. I don't know how many of you remember that song, but he's, he, he talks about a new revolution that has happened and a new constitution that has been written, and there is hope that things have changed. And yet the song ends on a note of despair because he says, you remember the ending of that song, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. He's saying that in the world, even when revolutions take place, nothing ever really changes. But this is not the case with us. We are foreigners in this world and we have been changed and the new boss is different than the old boss. The new boss is our Savior who had mercy upon us and pours out His Spirit into us. And He's given us a new mindset now so that we live as foreigners and aliens in the world and He begins to change even our appetites. Let's go back to that foreign family down the street. What would you think, very first of all, if they invited you over for dinner some night? I think the very first thing you would think is, what are they going to serve? <laughs> because people around the world eat very different things. And as I've traveled, the people that eat the strangest things in the whole world, and I love Asians, but it would have to be East Asians. So in November, I was in Laos, and we were in a marketplace with some of our folks there, and uh, with Mark and Sarah and Bruce, actually. Mark saw in the gutter a, something that was wiggling looked like a small snake and so I pointed it out to one of the lady shopkeepers there and, and she looked at it and she looked back a few stalls down and pointed to somebody else and pretty soon this flower man came and looked down there and he reached out and he grabbed this thing by the hand and I thought my goodness what's he going to do with this I thought he was going to throw it outside or stomp on it but then he went back to his little stall and he had six or eight baskets around there and he looked for the right one and then he just tossed it right back in and you want to know what that looks like I, I got a little video for you just for you See, these, these are eels, which the Lao people love to eat. And as you look at that, you think, and all the other delicacies available in this marketplace, we are foreigners in that country. <laughs> because we don't eat any of that stuff the way that they do. And then we were in the neighboring country in Cambodia. And one of the specialties there, there's actually one town that's best known for their fried tarantulas. 
They raise them, they grow tarantulas, and then they deep fry them, and people eat them. At least Cambodian people eat them. This is a lady that works with World Relief. She's our sister in Christ. And you know, she's munching down on that. When I was there, I, I literally, <laughs> I could not even put it in my mouth. It was just so gross. Plus, I knew I had a 12-hour plane ride ahead, and I didn't want other stuff to be happening. But for her, who was, <laughs> she was native to that culture, and she loved that flavor, and she enjoyed that. Now, what is Peter saying to us? My friends, he's saying, something's changed inside you. Now you are foreign people living here. Not only is it just for a short time, and not only do you have no rights, but, but God wants to change your very appetites. And it's going to take a while for that to happen. And it's going to begin with this admonition in verse 11, abstain from the passions of your soul. The challenge is that we really still do like eels and tarantulas, don't we? We need to say no. We need to grab, grab ourselves by the scruff of the neck. We need to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God because by His mercies He has redeemed us. And we need to just stop doing it. And maybe when you hear that this morning, you're saying, I've tried and I, I can't. It's no use just telling me not to do it because I can't stop myself. And if you're theologically aware, you might even ask this question, so where is the gospel in verse 11 anyway? This is just like any other religion telling me not to do bad stuff. I don't need to hear that. I need some help not to do it. But that's what our verse says. It says abstain from these fleshly desires. Well, if that's your question, it's a good one, and you need to ask it. Because Christianity is not just a set of laws that we have to obey. But you need to know that all of the experience of sanctification in the Christian life is not in one verse in the Bible. This is just one piece of that puzzle. And yet it's a very important piece, one that we often ignore. So if we could digress just for a minute, and I've, I've put together a small puzzle that helps me at least understand how we can abstain from fleshly desires, but do it in a grace-filled environment. First of all, there is confession where we agree with God both what the parameters are and that we have violated them. Then when we confess those to God, He forgives us completely. And you need to hear this morning that no matter what you have done in the flesh, no matter how many times you have given in to the desires of the flesh, there is forgiveness available for you in the blood of Jesus Christ. But He does something beyond that. And that is that God then transforms us. We become new creatures in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. And what is the new? The new is the Holy Spirit that He sends to live in us. We have a new life. And it is the Spirit that allows us then to live a victorious life. But there's a piece of the puzzle that we often leave out, and that's the piece that verse 11 tells us about. It takes discipline as well. You see, we need to grow up in our salvation, verse 2 of chapter 2. And in order to grow up in our salvation, we need to understand what it is. Salvation is not simply getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation is God delivering us in the here and now from all of the effects and the entanglements and the slavery of sin. And if we want that salvation, we need to understand this whole puzzle piece and we need to work with God 
by exercising the self-control that he gives us as he fills us with his Holy Spirit. You remember what Paul said, work out your salvation. That's in our evangelical, gospel, grace-filled Bible. With fear and trembling, he said, knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You see, there's a part in here that God plays and there's a part that we play. He gives the forgiveness and he gives the transformation. And once he gives insight, we're the ones that confess. And as he gives the power by his spirit, we're the ones that exercise self-discipline. Now, we generally take pretty good care of our bodies, don't we? Because we don't like to hurt. Um, we want to live as long as possible. And so every once in a while, we might get a physical. And what happens when you go in for a physical is the nurse puts you on a scale. She takes your vitals, weight, blood pressure, temperature, pulse, and then the doctor begins to figure out what's going on inside. Well, this morning, I wonder if maybe we need to do a physical of our souls. Because I suspect, being a human myself, that you have given in to the lusts of the flesh, and it's taken a toll on your soul. But we couldn't really call it a physical of the soul, so why don't we just call it a spiritual? What if we had a spiritual this morning? And just let the Holy Spirit examine the vitals of our soul so we can find out how healthy it is. What would some of those vitals be? Well, a vital soul, a healthy soul, loves to read the Bible. It doesn't have to. A healthy soul loves to pray. It, it longs to be in worship. It desires the community of the saints. It pours itself out in service to others. Those are the vitals of a healthy soul. And if, if that's not you this morning, then you need to let the Holy Spirit do a spiritual on you. And, and is it perhaps because you have been giving in and not controlling the fleshly desires that wage war against your soul that you have come broken and battered and beaten this morning? It's going to take some work, some blood, sweat, and tears, but he's there to help you. Julius Caesar once said, in other battles I fought for glory, but in Africa against Pompeii, I was obliged to fight for my life. Do you know, my friends, what it is to fight for your life? This is not a game. The eternal destiny and the temporal good of your soul is at stake in this battle. If I could just say a word to the men this morning, because I understand you a lot better than I understand the women here. Some of us love military history. We love strategy. Some of us have enough guns to outfit a small army. Others of us play call of duty until the wee hours of the morning because we love warfare, and yet we ignore and we back away from the most important battle of all, the battle for our souls. And while we're having fun in this world, our soul is shriveling and dying. And we're not only useless in this world now for God, but we're in danger of not entering the rest that God has for His people. Temptation will come, said Samuel Rutherford, but let God not have a faint and feeble soldier of you. You're ready to fight. You're not alone, but you need to fight this fight. And whatever it is for you in your physical body that is weakening and damaging your soul, you need to stop it.
with the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the first challenge we face as foreign people here. The second challenge is our witness, verse 12, the external battle for their souls. And again, let's quickly diagram this sentence. Uh, it begins, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's the main phrase of this second verse. So that, result clause, they may see your good deeds. And then the result of that is that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. How do we witness by good lives and good deeds? Keep your conduct, he says, honorable. Or as the NIV says, live such good lives. Is that from verse 11, that as we abstain from fleshly lusts, we live good lives? Yeah, I think that's part of it. But there's more to verse 12 than just what's in verse 11 because verse 12 says the unbelievers are going to be able to see those good deeds. So a good life internally will result in a good life externally and good deeds that the unbelievers will be able to actually see. And that will make a difference. The word is watching, the same word that is used of husbands who watch the character of their wives in chapter 3 verse 2. My friends, the world is watching us more closely than we think. They're waiting to see if what we say we really believe. Stephen Bauman says, deeds tell the real story of faith. They differentiate true religion from false, and they say a whole lot more about the quality of our faith than words do. You see, men will feel the need of the change that they see in us. When they see proof of our faith, they will begin to think about the object of our faith, our God. The Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, the world takes its notions of God, most of all, from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. You see, we are the Bible. We are God. We are Jesus to them. And whatever they see in our lives, they're going to attribute that to God. And if that is not attractive and winsome, they're not going to be drawn to him no matter what we say. Now let me for a minute just flip the script for you. Let's go back to that foreign family down the street. And let's say when you first see them get out of their car, the man has a turban and a beard. What are you going to think about that man? Well, deep down in your hearts, you might not say this, but you're going to say, oh my goodness, I hope he doesn't blow us up. You see, what you're going to do is you're going to attribute some things that other people who hold the same religious beliefs as that man have done in this world, and you're going to hold those against him, even though he may be totally against those, or he may be one of those. You just don't know. But my question is this. How can he change your mind about that negative perception you have of him? And my friends, the world does have a negative perception of us as Christians. They did back in Peter's day. They accused Christians of treason because they didn't follow the emperor. They accused them of atheism because they didn't believe the emperor was God. They accused them of incest because they called each other brother and sister. They accused Christians of cannibalism because they ate the Lord's Supper. There was a big uphill climb that they had to take to, to offer a witness for Christ just like that man with the turban and the beard down the street would have to do for you. How is he going to change your mind? 
Well, let's say he didn't say anything. Let's say that your husband was gone and you got stuck in a snowdrift in your driveway and he comes out and he spends half an hour and he shovels you out of your predicament. Or maybe your wife is sick and, and he, he sends his wife over with trays of food for your family. What is going to happen in your mind? Now, you're not going to become convinced of his religion, but something is going to begin to shift inside of you and say, you know, maybe these people aren't as bad as we thought all along. And that's, I think, what Peter is saying in this text. We need to do good deeds that are visible so that we can change the perception of people about not just us, but our God, and that they will then be interested in learning more about him and hearing the words of the gospel from our lips and ready to accept them. And this is why we witness, because they speak against us as evildoers. Peter got this idea from Jesus himself, who said, let your good deeds, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds, Matthew 5, 16, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And finally, what is the result of this witness? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation in the Bible is when God comes to the earth, either in judgment or in salvation. So this could mean one of two things. In the New Testament, as infrequently as the word is used, it always is used in a positive sense of God coming in salvation. So while this could mean that they will glorify God on the final day of judgment, I think this verse has a salvific, has a positive impact in it. And he's saying that people, when the day God visits the unbeliever by sending his Holy Spirit in this day and age, to open their minds, to see their sin, to see Christ in all of his glory, to see the grace that he offers so freely. When God visits them in that way, what are they going to do? They're going to say, ah, it all makes sense. That's why those people were so different from everybody that I knew in my life. That's why they were such good people, because they had met Jesus, and Jesus changed them, and, and now I want to become like them too. And then their lives begin to glorify God as well. Isn't it amazing to think that our good living could result in people's salvation? And my question for all of us this morning is, so what is your witness like? Do you know that God has left us here so that we might have an impact on the souls of that world out there that is so critical of us? How are we going to win them? By living such good lives among them and doing good deeds. We need to give of our time and of our money and of our service. We need to be engaged in our communities and our neighborhoods so that they can see something different about us and then be drawn to our Savior. Warren Wiersbe gave the illustration of a meeting that took place in 1805. A number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Buffalo Creek, New York to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read the book? Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this area. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. Now, here's the key part. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. 
If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said. That is what the world is waiting to see. That when Jesus comes into our life, he changes us and makes us beautiful people who selflessly serve, who love one another, who model the character of Jesus in front of a watching world, and then they're drawn to him. There's a war, and there's a witness. These are our challenges. Because now it's not the foreign family down the street anymore. It's you and me, the people of God. We have received so much mercy from him. We have received the privilege of being called his own possession. We are the foreign people here. One day we will be there, and these struggles and battles will be over. But for now, while you and I live here as aliens for a short while, we have a war to fight with his help and a witness to give to his glory. Will you pray with me? Would you just take a moment and... I don't know your heart, but if you'll open it up to the Holy Spirit, just let Him do a, a little physical on you right now, a little spiritual. What's the state of your soul this morning? Is it fresh and green and vibrant? Or is it weak and sickly, without energy, without effect in this world? Oh, God wants you to have a healthy soul. If you've lost some battles, you've not yet lost the war. Come back and engage. Make a commitment like Job did when he said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Maybe that's your issue. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's something else. What do you need to commit not to do any longer? so that your soul can then connect with God and flourish and thrive. Or maybe as you look at your witness in the world, both in your neighborhood and around the world, you say, you know, I'm not really making a dent here. Nobody knows who I am. There's nothing changing. Well, you need to come and open up your hands of all of your time and your energy and your monies, your gifts, and say, God, Take these and let me engage in good deeds where I'm needed, where I can help and serve. Because we want these unbelievers around us and around the world to see you in us, to be drawn to you. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness of Christ. That whenever we come and confess, you wash us as white as snow. We thank you for your challenge to us this morning that we have a war to wage. We have a witness to give. Help me in my struggle and in my witness and help all my brothers and sisters here. And for those who are not yet part of the family of God, would you open their hearts today to understand that mercy is available to them as well if they would but come and believe. There will be some of us at the front as soon as the service is over, 
Don't leave today without making some changes and some commitments. And if you'd like somebody to pray with you and for you, we would love to do that. So come up to the front when we're done if you would like prayer and encouragement. But as we close, hear this benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.